Self-regulation is, is very important. And our work has been more about trying to understand what really is driving these kind of bad behaviors, more so than how to fix them. We have had discoveries that have the potential, at least, for helping um, treat things such as you know, work on um, reconsolidation. And a lot of our work, early work on extinction, showing that the prefrontal cortex was involved in regulating the amygdala and extinction. That was very, I think that was a good connection into the world of exposure therapy. But we don't have like big home runs that I can tell you that, that really can be used by people. I think just taking that breath is a good thing. I mean, talking about the vagal theory, you take the breath and that kind of begins to slow everything down. That works because the nervous system is wired like that. Sympathetic is trying to take you down the road and the parasympathetic can slow it down a bit. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. One of the reasons you might listen to Therapist Uncensored is that you want to know the whys of relationships and emotion. And that's exactly why our team reached out to the expert on the amygdala and our body's threat response system. Joseph Ledoux is a professor of psychiatry at NYU Langone Medical School and the Center for Neuroscience, as well as director of the Emotional Brain Institute at NYU. Ledoux has earned several scientific recognitions and awards and has authored three books, The Emotional Brain, The Synaptic Self, and Anxious, for which he received the William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. And if that's not enough, he's also recognized as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the New York Academy of Sciences, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So, as you can imagine, Ann and Sue could not be more honored to talk with Dr. Ledoux about his work on memory and emotion, and specifically for this episode, his specialized work on the amygdala, because once again, he is the amygdala expert. Oh, and fun fact, Ledoux's also the lead singer for the rock band The Amygdaloids. So with that, let's jump right into Sue Marriott's conversation with Dr. Joseph Ledoux. Hi, I'm Joseph Ledoux. I'm a professor of neuroscience at New York University. I've worked on emotions in the brain for 30-something years, maybe 40 years. I've lost track. And I'm also a musician, and sometimes I write music about mind and brain and mental disorders. But they're basically just love songs, which is like most rock songs. They're kind of just love songs about mind and brain and mental disorders. The name of your band is Amygdaloids. Is that right? The Amygdaloids, yes. <laughs> so do we have your permission to play some of your music on the... Play as much as you like, yes. <laughs> I'd be very happy for that. One of our taglines is, it's not me, it's my amygdala. And we're sitting here now with the expert when it comes to that this particular structure. So first of all, are there any comments about the notion of that idea, it's not me, it's my amygdala? So the amygdala has become what's commonly known as a cultural meme, the amygdala fear center. It's complicated that, you know, when you're doing, you know, I first got involved in all this research, I was using a procedure called fear conditioning. And in fear conditioning, you condition a person or a rat to, in the presence of a tone or a picture or something, to get a mild electric shock. It's a very simple Pavlovian thing. But it's very useful experimentally, especially for studying the brain, because you have a stimulus 
and you have a response and then you can figure out how you know the two get together in the brain and out comes the response. But this is very kind of simple, primitive stuff. It's not very fancy. But the name of the task implies that it's fear that gets conditioned. But I think that's actually wrong. And I was not so clear. I, you know, I've always proposed that what the amygdala does is detect and respond to danger. We call that fear because of the name of the task. But I always, even at the beginning, would say that it's implicit fear. It's not like the conscious feeling of fear. It's kind of like, you know, what you might call implicit memory as opposed to explicit memory, conscious memory versus unconscious memory. So the amygdala was always thought of as an unconscious threat detector. And for me, the conscious experience of fear was always a cortical cognitive interpretation of that situation. Now, why did I believe that in 19... I don't know, when I started this work in 1984 or something like that. Well, a decade earlier, I'd started graduate school studying with Michael Gosanica, who was famous for his work on split brain patients. And so that's what I did my PhD on studying split brain patients. In these patients, what you do is you present a stimulus, say, to the left side of space that goes to the right hemisphere, stimulus to the right side of space that goes to the left hemisphere. Left hemisphere is where language usually is. So you can ask the person, you know, what did you see? If the stimulus is over here on the right side, it goes into the left side of the brain. And the patient says, I saw the apple. And if the stimulus is over here on the left side and it goes to the right hemisphere, ask the left hemisphere, what did you see? You're asking the patient, but it's the left hemisphere that's answering. I didn't see anything because the information goes to the right hemisphere, but because the brain is split, because in an effort to control epilepsy, the seizures don't jump around as much, but it means also that the information going in the right hemisphere stays there. You know, it's like what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's like the right hemisphere. Can't talk. We would do all kinds of experiments trying to elicit behaviors in the right hemisphere. And we would have the patient, you know, we could like to make the patient wave or, scratch his arm or stand up. You say, why'd you do that? And we're talking to the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere would say, well, I stood up because I needed to stretch. Or if he laughed, he would say, well, you guys are really funny. You know? So the guy was generating a narrative nonstop, you know, not missing a beat. It's not like he's thinking, oh, what, how can I make sense of that? It's just bam, bam, bam. And so that narrative, we thought, would be something that is generated in us normally when we have an unconscious behavior that's being generated. And that maybe emotion systems or systems that would generate behaviors unconsciously that would require some kind of interpretation. So I decided to start studying rats to study how non-conscious systems in the brain might generate emotional behavior. And that led me to fear conditioning this, you know, to get the stimulus and the response. But that's why I always thought of the amygdala as a non-conscious processor, because it's generating these behaviors non-consciously. And then cognitively, we interpret that to generate a, a narrative that makes it make sense in terms of who we are. Now, this is based on Festinger's theory of cognitive dissonance. You know, we all think we have free will, free will and are in charge of what we do. But if we're constantly generating behaviors that we aren't in charge of, that's that's a source of dissonance. So the one of the things the brain has figured out how to do in human evolution is to spin these tales. We're you know a storytelling animal, right? So we spin these tales to make our laws make sense and to reduce the dissonance 
the massive control of behavior non-consciously, which is kind of the case in, in many ways. We have a lot of stuff we do unconsciously. You know, that's something you need to like work out to keep the sense of mental unity, right? Consciously, we think we're one system, one person, but we've got a very diverse brain that's generating a lot of stuff that doesn't match with that. That's a long-winded answer. (laughs) Let me see if I can say back some of this. Basically, the amygdala, calling it the fear center is a mistake, that it's a threat detection system that operates on the non-conscious level. So by the time that something registers as fear, you're talking about a new system, a different system now. That's basically it. But I mean, the key point is you've got one stimulus out there, snake at your feet, right? That stimulus is going to activate different systems in the brain. Not just the two I'm talking about, but one will be, you know, the amygdala system that generates the freezing response so you don't step on the snake and the heart rate responses that go with that. And the second system that's cognitive and is interpreting what's going on in that situation in your body. And you so generate a narrative based on an emotion schema. We've spoken with Steve Porges, Story Follows State and the Polyvagal Theory. So this is very consistent. So people have asked us, what does that mean, Story Follows State? And this is what it is, is that you have this experience, but there's then a conscious story that gets layered on top to make it make sense. Already we've talked about the difference between threat and fear, that those are two different things. I was listening to something that you were talking about earlier about the freeze response and rats and how that there's some rats that never learn and they end up staying frozen. And you had made a reference to the psychopathology in humans. And there are some people due to trauma and unresolved, you know, experiences in their history that kind of live in that freeze reaction. I mean, this is really diving to the heart of matter of like, how can we use your research? Like, are there things to speak to? And I know that, you know, you're not talking about rats having feelings and it's not a direct correlation, but intuitively, What's your sense of that, of how we could best help people that have those kinds of severe trauma? You know, sometimes it's hard to get from the compelling finding to the you know, magic bullet that's going to solve the problem, <laughs> but maybe just understanding how some of the basic stuff works is useful to patients because it helps them understand what's going on. So for example, if we take rats and condition, I don't know, let's say 10 of them, you're going to get a bell curve. It's not like they all have the same amount of freezing. They will all freeze some, but it's going to be a bell curve. And that bell curve reflects individual differences, just like in people. We're all different, react to different things, something that you know drives me crazy is other people love. One way to think about the brain is that every cell in the brain can be thought of as having its own bell curve. So who you are is like the kind of giant summation of all those bell curves that have been shaped each one separately by genes and experience, because it's not just experience and everything in the brain, the brain is is an environment for all those cells and the environment out there is an environment for the brain. So it's all kind of connected down to the wiring of what goes on at a very micro level that determines who we are. So with all those bell curves, let's just take the the amygdala. It's it's like, you know, we got a million bell curves or however many cells it has, they're all bell curves. And it's not the whole amygdala though that's involved in all this. It's only some small parts of it. And what we found was that, so if we condition all these animals such that they learn how to avoid danger, that was what the study was about. They learn an avoidance response. 
Now, in the clinical world, avoidance is a bad thing, right? So that's certainly true. And what we were looking at is the fact that when we look at the avoidance behavior, which is also individually different in each, each, each rat, what determined whether the rat was going to avoid or not was how much they froze. If you're freezing, you can't take action. We think of avoidance in the way we study it as you know, kind of a proactive avoidance, a kind of useful avoidance where the animal or person learns to do something to help them cope with the danger, as opposed to more of a passive avoidance where you know, if you say have panic attacks, if you go outside, so you stay home all the time, you're passively avoiding. But if you can actively engage somehow and have mastery over the situation, more of a positive, you know, active coping kind of thing, you can't do the positive thing. You can't avoid if you're frozen. So you can't have active avoidance if you have passive avoidance, basically. So what we found was that in one part of the amygdala, if we damage that part of the amygdala, we expected the animals, well, now they could then learn to avoid because they would stop freezing. And yes, they stopped freezing, but we didn't even have to teach them how to avoid. They had already learned it, but they couldn't get it out because they were so frozen. And I think that is so true of a lot of people, psychologically frozen and can't do anything positive because they're so psychologically frozen. So the rat work, you know, has some at least metaphoric value. And I think we even learned that if we put, for example, propranolol into the, this part of the brain, that would make the animal stop freezing and start avoiding effectively. Propranolol is proposed to be a useful thing to help you with some aspects of anxiety. But I think the, you know, the exciting studies at the beginning haven't all been, you know, confirmed so it's not as strong a case as it once was, but I think there's still some evidence that, you know, a dose of propranolol can help you with stage fright and things like that. It's just not quite as, as powerful as we'd once uh, thought. Yeah, it's too bad that when there's a natural disaster that we can't like run in and, <laughs> you know. So in the therapy world, you know, we talk about the unconscious and what's the relationship between the non-conscious and the unconscious? The unconscious, of course, has very strong associations with Freud and, and the whole repression of anxious thoughts and so forth. So I'm not like denying or dismissing that in any way. What I'm just saying is that non-conscious is a more neutral term. It's just not conscious. And what I mean by that, you know, there's something called the cognitive unconscious, which is not the Freudian unconscious. It's not the dynamic unconscious. It's just stuff in the brain that is not wired to be conscious. So for example, you have no conscious awareness of the circuits that are controlling your heartbeat or your digestion. Uh, the brain is doing all that stuff or regulating your temperature, but that stuff is all in there. Think of it this way. Every conscious thought until the last microsecond when it becomes conscious is unconscious, pre-conscious, non-conscious. You know? So the conscious thought is a buildup of non-conscious cognitive information processing based on schemas and narrations and, and all these cognitive processes that, that we call upon. You know, it's like all building up. And then some of that sometimes crosses the line and becomes conscious. But until it's conscious, it's non-conscious. 
that's not because of repression. That's just like how the brain is, you know, there's a lot of circuitry that leads up to a conscious experience. And so that stuff is pre-conscious, non-conscious. There's a very famous therapist, Christopher Bolas, that talks about the unthought known. And that, that feels like it's in the direction of these pre-conscious thoughts. I'm not sure, but... Like Donald Rummelhart's, um, you know, the unknown knowns and the known unknowns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. So just to clarify, like you mentioned earlier, freeze. And I began to think about dissociation. You know, you know what I mean? Some of the versions of that. And avoidance. And in the attachment world, you know, we've got the folks who from an information, this is what the way we think of it, I think, and I like checking all this out. But from an information processing perspective, that that early experience, they stumbled upon, maybe partly because of all of these bell curves of all the cells, the way to make their caregiver available being to move in one direction. And then from an information processing standpoint, you know, like, definitely um, implicit non-conscious early experience that then later becomes the mental map and the story then overlays people are dangerous i'm worthy i'm unworthy yeah i mean i call that what you're saying a mental map the schema that you've acquired over the course of your life and when you're in a situation of danger you call upon your fear schema right and you have you know expectations about how you will respond and then that leads to, well, how do others respond? And you do social comparison. And you know, there's all kinds of roads you can go to once you've opened up a schema. But the schema I see as these non-conscious templates that are the basis for our conscious thoughts. That doesn't mean that a conscious thought is preformed in the schema. It's just the schema provides the situational information and every situation is different. So different things come up from, you know, because memories are very complex. So you pulling out a lot of stuff in any one situation. So your fear scheme in this situation might be slightly different from another situation because they're not the same situation. But it's all non-conscious and it's just that it's that precursor, that last step before the conscious experience. So you, the schema gives you the information, there's a non-conscious narrative, and that becomes what you're conscious of. In the attachment language, then we're describing avoidance and dis, you know, kind of dismissing whether there's a the schema tilts in that direction. And then the preoccupied where that we're gathering information and maybe misreading information in order to stay safe, in order to regulate. But that's different, I think, than you mean by the avoidance where the rat freezes or avoidance in, you know, like the dorsal vagal just shut down. Well, I mean, avoidance is a behavioral, certainly in animals, it's a behavioral process, right? You know, we're looking at avoidance behavior because we don't know what's going on in the animal's mind. But in humans, of course, we have cognitive avoidance as well, right? So we, we shut down things we don't want to think about. The way that I was thinking of it was the dorsal shutdown being the freeze that you're seeing in the rats. I'm not sure that's the uh, answer to freezing in the rat. And we can explain it pretty clearly in terms of the circuitry from the central nucleus of the amygdala to the periaqueductal gray to motor output midbrain motor system output that goes down to the spinal cord and controls the freezing response. At the same time, in our studies, rats have a dominant uh, sympathetic response where blood pressure is rising, heart rate is, uh, is rising. Underneath that, if you block the sympathetic responses, then you see a strong vagal response is released, but it's typically suppressed by the sympathetic drive. Well, another area of your research was on memory reconsolidation. 
Tell us about that. I'd be interested in knowing more about what your other guests have said and the application of it, because scientifically, it's been difficult to get this in humans uh, in controlled experiments. But in the rats, what we discovered, and this was work that Kareem Nader, a very talented postdoc in my lab at the time, who is now at McGill University, Kareem discovered that well, we'd been studying protein synthesis and its role in, in memory. So we would block protein synthesis in the amygdala. And so animals that had protein synthesis blockade were unable to form a long-term memory about the, the dangerous stimulus, the tone paired with the shock. This was consistent with the whole literature in the memory field, which is that memory depends on the synthesis of proteins in those parts of the brain that are responding to the situation. Kareem said, well, maybe protein synthesis is also involved when we retrieve a memory. I said, no, that, that, that's not true. That's wrong. He said, he said oh, man, yeah, okay, whatever. So he walked out. Then like a month later, he said he did it. He found that protein synthesis was involved in the retrieval of a memory. So if you block protein, let's say you condition a rat to a tone paired with the shock, the rat then freezes. The next day, you give the rat the tone without the shock now because he's been conditioned and you now block protein synthesis right before the retrieval process or even right afterwards, what you find is the next day, they don't remember it. So it's like retrieving the memory puts it in this vulnerable state and you have to synthesize proteins to restabilize that state, just as you did in the first, in the learning, you have to stabilize the synaptic plasticity. Now you have to restabilize the synaptic plasticity because that has been destabilized by retrieval. You're doing it at this neuron peptide level. I think the idea is that you have the traumatic memory. And here's another point that I think that we've learned from you is that that trauma will always be there. Even when we've learned deconditioned that under stress and under certain circumstances, or if you go in and snip the neurons that have grown over it, but basically the, the fear is always there. And that's another actually area of your research I think that's really interesting. So the fear is there. So from a therapeutic standpoint, the idea is that you get the person connected to that traumatic experience where they're feeling it. So then that raises it up. And I think your research says that if this translated, that destabilizes it. And so if you have a new experience at that same time, feeling safe while you're talking about it, having a different reaction than you expected, love, whatever the change is, that when it gets restored, I guess what happens then? So when it, then when it goes back down, it's a new memory or it's released the pocketed trauma? I think the lay summary that you just did probably took some license in terms of what I would really say. Okay. So what would you, I would really love to hear. What would you really say? You know, we did write a paper once on the indelibility of emotional memory. In 1989 is one of my, you know, very early papers. And it suggested that, you know, once the memory was was laid down in the amygdala, that it never went away. But I don't know if we've ever really been able to prove that, you know. One of the confusions that we have as we go between humans and animals is that what humans are really concerned about is their memory of the trauma. But in the rats, all we're looking at is a behavioral response or physiological, you know, blood pressure or heart rate response. And if the experience is the cognitive interpretation, as we've been talking about, the stuff that we've discovered in the rat is not the same as what you want to know about for a human. 
because in the human person who is traumatized, you've got all this stuff happening underneath the, the hood, so to speak, but it's the horrible feelings that come with all this that disturb the patient. I mean, there's been a tremendous, I just I have a paper coming out in a psychiatric journal. It's called Putting the Mental Back into Mental Disorders, because there's been a marginalization of subjective experience in the whole field, starting when the psychiatry became biological and started using drugs. How do you develop a drug? Well, you put an animal through blah, 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 and then a pharmaceutical lab, and the red is freezing less, you assume that if you give the drug to a person, they'll be less fearful or anxious, but the drugs don't work. Pharmaceutical companies are getting out of the business. Why? Because it's wrong to expect that from freezing behavior in a rat, you can go to conscious feelings of fear in a person. Think of it this way. One of the things you have to do in a person who has traumatic memories and so forth, or is just anxious in general about some kind of situation, you have to get rid of the behavioral responses in the physiology because those will always reinvigorate, reestablish the memory if you've got the amygdala activity that is still there. So step one, I think, is should target the amygdala, tame the amygdala. How do you do that? And by taming the amygdala, I mean like suppressing heart rate increases, suppressing freezing behavior. So we know that if we give people pictures of snakes or spiders or you know, other kinds of scary things, that will activate the amygdala in a human. And you can present those stimuli subliminally. So the person doesn't know the stimulus is there. It's like a split brain patient that says, I didn't see anything. So the person says, I didn't see anything, but their heart is beating a little faster because the stimulus was there. So maybe if we could use subliminal exposure therapy, in other words, present the spider to the spider phobic subliminally because spider phobics don't like to see spiders, right? But you can do it that way that the conscious spider phobic's mind doesn't know the spider is there. So tame the amygdala, reduce the arousal. And okay, now the person can look at the spider without you know, feeling all, you know, the muscle tension and the jitteriness and all that. And so now what you want to do is tame the hippocampus, start changing some memories that the person was too upset about to really be able to address them. And once you've done step one and step two, now you want to just tame the prefrontal cortex by engaging in just regular old talk therapy, you know, because now the person is ready to talk about it because you got the physiological and behavioral threat responses and the beliefs stored in memory that have been adjusted. So now they can just talk about their life as a person rather than being all, you know, freaked out about it. I, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm just making this stuff up. But this is based on what's happening in the brain. And you mentioned the hippocampus. And so what's, what does uh, taming the hippocampus look like? You know, the hippocampus stores our conscious cognitive memories, episodic and semantic memories. And so in any kind of anxiety situation, you're going to store episodic memories about your relationship to that situation. And every time you revisit that past situation in your mind, you're retrieving those episodic memories. And every time you envision your future, you're time traveling. So you can time travel to the past through episodic memory, but you can also time travel to the future 
And when you time travel to the future, you're anticipating, you know, this happening to you again. So it's kind of like rumination, not only the past, but about the future. So you need to like adjust those episodic memories and find ways to recode them so that the person can then have a conversation about their life without that being their life in a sense. Would introducing like mindfulness, safe imagery, things like that, would that qualify with this idea? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of mindfulness and I think that's incredibly useful. Uh, how it fits into this program, you know, I guess in order to do it in terms of episodic memory, you would have to have the person meditating on their episodic memories. Or creating, since a memory is a future, right? You know, one of the techniques that people are using are like basically using your imagination to imagine this false positive memory. Right. But I think you also, if you leave the past memories there to be reinvigorated, you know, they're just waiting. (laughs) So somehow we have to address that. My thing is very simple-minded and it's probably impractical for anything. I mean, if it worked in spider phobics, that would be a good test case. But if you've got things that are much more complex in terms of, you know, memories of all kinds of things and it's not just a specific stimulus, but a, you know, like a whole system of knowledge that, that's problematic, then it's not going to work. Well, I think, I mean, I guess the way that I was thinking of it was imagining yourself small with the protective parent. We're only limited by imagination so that it's literally messing with the historical memory, conscious memory. Let me give you a good example of research that's been done that might be relevant. My good friend and colleague, Hakwan Lao, who was until recently at UCLA, he's at the Riken Institute in Japan now, has been using fMRI decoding. So he just did a very simple thing in humans. He conditioned some stimulus, conditioned a stimulus to a shock in a person. Whenever that stimulus was presented, he could then follow the neural activity associated with that stimulus and get a kind of neural brain print of that activity. And so whenever that activity would then be presented in the presence of the stimulus, or whenever it was just spontaneously occurring, he would then pair that with a positive stimulus. And so he was changing the neural representation of the threat by counter-conditioning it with positive stimulus. You know, the person wasn't necessarily looking at the negative stimulus at the time. It was just having a kind of rumination about it and then reconditioning it. So it's very sophisticated stuff, and I'm probably not doing justice to it at all because it's so complicated. I don't even understand the method. But I think a lot of people or a lot of researchers are using this decoding, neural decoding uh, approach. I mean, I can hear how it's different, but is it a cousin or similar to the memory reconsolidation? You know, in a way, I guess you could link it to that. I hadn't thought of that, but that's a good point. So you've got a, a neural state that is active, and when that state is active, it's vulnerable, so you can then put in the positive stimulus, and yes, great idea. Kind of mess with it, yep. Just for the super nerdy geeks out there, there's another one that you had talked about related to light. Oh, optogenetics. That's a technique that was invented by um, researchers at Stanford. Um, Carl Dyserhoff was the, the leader of the lab, and it's it's uh, quite an amazing thing that you know it's in the pipeline for the future for being used in people. But basically the idea is that you take like algae, 
which has some light sensitive property and you extract genes from that and put the light sensitive genes into, I hate to use the word virus because it has the wrong implication these days, but a dead virus construct that you would put into the brain of an animal. Then you let it sit there and it infects the cells. It doesn't do anything bad. I mean, it doesn't kill the cells. It just like enters the cells, but it has no replicating properties that's doing anything. It just gets into the cell. And once it's into the cell, if you shine a laser light, let's say it's in the amygdala, you put a tiny microfiber optic cable into the amygdala and shine the light. That light is now detected by that algae virus in there. The other thing that's in the thing that you injected with the light sensitive molecule is genes that are going to turn on or turn off the activity of the cell. So basically you shine the light and you can shut down the amygdala cells, or you shine the light and you can beef, you know, you can speed them up, increase their activity. And so this is very useful as opposed to like going in making a lesion in the brain, you're destroying the brain. And so you're looking at what's left rather than what it actually does. But here you can actually see the activity of the cells and, you know, an animal that is now given an extra stimulation of the amygdala will respond stronger. And if you inhibit the amygdala, instead of activating it, you can you know, make the animals freeze less. Oh, I was just about to say that. So going back to the frozen rats, I'm just sort of emphasizing this again so people hear this. The freeze that inhibits you from taking action is the problem. And so this light example if it works to inhibit the amygdala firing and, and being worried and sending out all of its messengers, then you're going to be able to stay in a more of a coping state and use your hippocampus and use your other strategies that are involved in these different systems in your brain. Now, before people start writing to me, asking me for to put things in their brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what this is being considered for is, is like Parkinson's disease and neurological conditions more so than psychiatric things, because we know more about the circuitry of a neurological condition. So, you know, it's definitely not ready for prime time in the area of psychiatry. But the metaphor of it even helps us understand that we need to cool off the amygdala, which is not conscious. So in rats, you know, it's the heart rate and the behaviors that are the tell, really. And then we want to stimulate the hippocampus. That's a good thing. We like the hippocampus, right? That's that's our, I always think of it like therapists being the hippocampus of the client sometimes, you know, we work to make sense of some fragmented things and, you know, create a story. Well, I think that would be the prefrontal cortex. You're interpreting hippocampus, you're retrieving the memories and you want to like help them change the beliefs that are encoded in those memories, right? Right, right. Well, I mean, I think that's still fair, right? That That's some of the, some of therapy is like, changing the beliefs themselves. Yeah, you're right. And the prefrontal being the actual story. That's exciting. And that's a very clear path that feels intuitively, you know, we're not going to do anything crazy if we were to follow this idea of inhibiting the amygdala, calming the amygdala, because it's when the amygdala is calmer, then the hippocampus can learn and can create new episodic memories. So and what do you think of this? I mean, I think that in a therapeutic situation, a lot of the work probably gets done between the unconscious mind of the therapist and the unconscious mind of the patient. You know, we have to figure out something to talk about while that goes on. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. That's one way that I think of it. <laughs> and, you know, we think of it as like rewiring 
you know, having a safe experience, sharing something shameful. Um, it's not my brilliant thing that I say that gives them the new idea they've never thought of. That never happens. That rarely happens, right? <laughs> but we are forming a new implicit memory as well as the hippocampal memory, as well as the story. So, yeah, I, th I think that's a nice way to think of it. Now, consciousness and integrating all of these things, because we think of secure relating as a very integrated mind, a balanced mind, top, bottom, left, right, all the whole things. I was wondering what your thoughts are, you know, with all of this incredible research on psychedelics and these massively positive outcomes from a neural standpoint, you know what I mean? What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I really don't know much about it, so I, so I don't think I should say anything because I don't have a, an informed opinion. I think it's pretty cool, and um, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with the stories I read, just like you know you do. But um, I don't think I know enough to really be able to say anything. Yeah, I'm very curious just about the mechanism, you know. And I'm also very skeptical anytime people are evangelical about anything <laughs> and, and people in the psychedelic world can get really excited about it. But at the same time, you don't want to ignore things. So, well, are there any other findings from your lab, from your students that you would want people to know that would be able to help them, you know, regulate themselves or have close relationships? Yeah, I mean, regulation, self-regulation is, is very important. And our work has been more about trying to understand what really is driving these kind of bad behaviors more so than how to fix them. We have had discoveries that have the potential at least for helping um, treat things such as, you know, work on um, reconsolidation and a lot of our work, early work on extinction, showing that the prefrontal cortex was involved in regulating the amygdala and extinction. That was very, I think that was a good connection into the world of exposure therapy. But we don't have like big home runs that I can tell you that, that really can be used by people. I think just taking that breath is a good thing. I mean, talking about the vagal theory, you take the breath and that kind of begins to slow everything down. That works because the nervous system is wired like that. Sympathetic is trying to take you down the road and the parasympathetic can slow it down a bit. You had mentioned that the reconsolidation didn't look like it was working in humans, maybe. The home runs were in the animal work where we're conditioning, freezing and blood pressure and heart rate and that kind of stuff. But now you take it, this into a human, you want to change the person's memory of the past, that's a whole different thing. It's, it's, that's the hippocampal memories rather than the amygdala memories. And there's some evidence of reconsolidation in the role of the hippocampus in, it, in animals, but it's not as robust a thing as, as the more behavioral stuff. And that's kind of impaired the, you know, kind of been a problem in the translation that the, the translators have been thinking that the behavioral stuff in the animals would directly apply to human thoughts and memories. But I think that's overly optimistic. We have to find a way to directly do reconsolidation that is going to be able to address those, those conscious memories. You know? So is it true, though, that here was one theory about EMDR and some of the treatments was that it moved traumatic memory from the amygdaloid system, memory system, freed it up to be able to be processed by the hippocampus. And that that I think was that's a good metaphor, but I don't think there's any data to suggest that. Okay. Okay. That's a good metaphor. It doesn't hurt anybody. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, a lot of the, the brain stuff is, I think, useful for people who have problems because you can 
think of how things might be working. But do we know that? I don't think we know that. Is it true that there is a memory, an implicit memory system, you know, related more to the amygdala systems and a explicit memory system involved with the hippocampus? Yeah, so explicit memory involves the hippocampus, semantic episodic memory. Implicit memory is something that happens everywhere else in the brain. It's not like there's an amygdala system. Implicit memory is just memory that is stored in the circuit that does something, whether it's controlling motor behavior, you know, like just movements you practice playing guitar over and over again, you get better. That's an implicit memory. Driving a standard. <laughs> yeah, well, every, every kind of, again, all those bell curves in the brain are implicitly learning nonstop. You know, we can think of our life, our brain basically as a deep learning mechanism. It's constantly taking in information, updating who we are in a way that we don't know about explicitly, we can't access, but is so familiar that we know it's there. And there are people in whom their knowledge, their, their sense of this is my arm or this is uh, my thought, these can become lost because of, of certain kinds of brain damage. When that happens, you see it puts in relief the fact that normally we just know that this is my thought, this is my hands. But in people who lose that, we see how central that, that sense, that almost unconscious fringe of consciousness, as William James said, that fringe of consciousness, penumbra of consciousness, sense that we have of who we are is this kind of like deep learning throughout our life by all of those systems in our brain, every one of them. Are there any resources that you would direct readers that are nerdy and <laughs> that really are enjoying this and want to do a deeper dive? Any particular books or articles? Yeah, I mean, my book, The Emotional Brain, came out in 1996. It's still printed and sold. Uh, I wrote a book called Synaptic Self later. But perhaps the book that you might want to, if you wanted to read my stuff, is called Anxious. It was published in 2015. It's more current than the others. And it includes all the stuff we've been talking about, for the most part, at least. And then if you're interested in optogenetics, uh, Carl Dyseroff, the, the mastermind of that, wrote a, a very personal kind of story of his, he's a psychiatrist, his quest to, to discover treatments by studying the brain. And so that's why he went in there. It's a great book. Uh, I forget the title of the Dyseroff. You know, I have a good friend, Stefan Hoffman, who's a cognitive behavioral therapist, and he has a number of books. I have another friend, Dennis Tersh, who's a mindfulness therapist, and he has a lot of books on, on that. So those are the people I like to read. Oh, good. Yeah, that's really helpful. So in particular, if you would like to follow up, it sounds like your most recent book, Anxious, would be where you would send folks. And we'll link that for Not sure. Not my most recent, but that, that, but that was your most recent. It's called uh, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains. Oh, nice. It's interesting in the in, as a reading book because each chapter is very short, about 1,500 words, 2,000 words, because there's a lot of technical stuff uh, about the history of life and how, you know, basically what I say is that Behaviors like freezing and so forth are eating, are drinking, are copulating, are based on things that happened 4 billion years ago in the first cell that ever lived. So think of the cell and the primordial soup that where the cell was created by the idea was that there's this electric bolt lightning. 
stimulates all these things to happen in this primordial soup. That's a metaphorical thing, but certainly life began in some way that a cell came to exist and could survive long enough to reproduce. And that means that that cell that it gave rise to reproduce. So every cell that has ever lived, including all the cells in our body, is a descendant of that first kind of bacterial cell that lived 3.7 billion years ago. That's just dividing and dividing and dividing. And now we, we have different kinds of cells now. But anyway, back to the first bacterial cell, it had to do four things to get to reproduce. Detect danger and respond to it. So bacterial cells are moving around. If there's a high concentration of acid, they flip away. They're moving around. If there's nutrients, they keep going towards it and absorb nutrients. They have to also find the right balance in their environment of electrolytes so that they have a balance between you know, water and salts. Just like you exercise too much, you got to drink Gatorade to replenish the electrolytes. Every cell has to do that. If they don't have a, the right balance, they can either explode or collapse. So every cell in your body has to maintain that balance. And that's something that started in that first cell. They have to thermoregulate. All the enzymatic reactions that take place in a cell depend on thermoregulation. So that cell had to have the right kind of temperature in order to keep itself alive. And with those four things, it could then also reproduce. And those are the things we do to get through the day. You know, we detect and respond to danger. We incorporate nutrients by eating. We balance fluids by drinking. Thermoregulate by putting on clothes, take them off. We don't reproduce every day, but, you know, we have that capacity to generate new members of our species. So it's a long, long history of life that's given rise to behavior. I mean, our behavior is very different from that of a bacterial cell, but the things we have to do to survive are the same. So the survival requirements are the same, but the implementations are different. And somewhere along that way, consciousness came about. And how that happened is very complicated. But I think it's uh, you know, something that happened relatively recent uh, in, in this history. I don't want to go into that because it's too long. A story. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> It's fascinating, and we will definitely put that in there. And as you were talking, you were, you know, that's the individual cell, but then there's also all these relationships between cells. And uh, yeah, I think of that sometimes, you know, a dyad, a group, a community, a world, and how we co-regulate one another. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If people wanted to reach out to you, where would you direct them? Well, uh, my website is joseph-ledoux.com. Okay, that's, that's the best place. Uh, and there's resources there. You'll be hearing his music, and we'll we'll link some of that there too, so that people can enjoy your rock. <laughs> Thank you. Nice talking to you. It's been delightful. Thank you.
Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 